We are in a conversation today about um, daring faith. Uh, And what we've been uh, learning as we've been through this uh, conversation is that is that um, faith is is the confidence that God is who he says he is and will do everything that he's promised to do. That's kind of the the dictionary definition of faith. And you can for Christians, at least it's the Bible definition of faith. And it's it's what you find in places like uh, Hebrews 11. But what we've been looking at is a particular application of that idea, which is that is that faith is the thing that spans the gap between our current circumstances and what it is that we're hoping for, what our hope is from God. And what we've seen is that sometimes we have we have very small faith, which means we're basically thinking that that you know all we care about is is our current circumstances. We're not we're not expecting anything else from God. That we haven't left any room in our lives. We haven't left any room in our expectations for God to do anything. And that when we have that kind of small faith, God probably doesn't do much. We've seen that in the scriptures where Jesus couldn't do miracles in places because they had small faith. But when people had big faith, when the thing that they were expecting was very different from their current circumstances, that is spanned by faith. And when people had that kind of faith, Jesus could do miracles. So that's what we've been looking at. And today we're going to look at one of the reasons we don't have big faith. The reason we don't have that kind of daring, bold faith is because we're intimidated by big numbers. Like, suppose suppose I told you that um, instead of getting a PFD credited to your bank account um, in the next couple of days, you're going to get a gigantic bill. You're going to get a, get a bill for $50,000, right? You probably wouldn't like that. But you can imagine it, right? I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't know what I'd do. It, it would be, a, it would be a hardship, but I could figure it out somehow. But suppose instead I told you we were going to get a bill for fifty billion dollars, right? Your mind just comes to a halt. It blanks. I don't know what to do with fifty billion dollars. There's like six people in the world who could pay a bill of fifty billion dollars. Uh, the rest of us, our mind just kind of checks out, and you know, kind of eyes glaze over, and we don't know what to do because big numbers intimidate us. Or, or let, let me take another example. Let's suppose you go away on vacation. You take four days or whatever it is. You come back to work, and you know there's going to be some email in your inbox. And you look at it, it's 185 messages. And you go, oh, my goodness. So you kind of sort through those 185 emails. But suppose instead there was 18,000 emails. What would you do? What would you do if somebody added a zero to the number of emails or maybe a couple of zeros? It just kind of makes our mind blink. How would I ever tackle that problem. I mean, what would I do? Just kind of throw them all away and uh, hope nothing was important in there? Uh, uh, probably, yeah. yeah. People talk about in- inbox uh, bankruptcy. So um, so maybe you would just declare inbox bankruptcy. But but when there's a big number, when it just kind of it boggles our mind, we don't know what to do with it. And I think, unfortunately, we sometimes project that onto God. We say, I don't know what to do with 18,000 emails, and neither does God. God would be equally baffled if he got 18,000 emails in his mailbox. God would be equally baffled if somebody asked him for $50 billion instead of $50,000. And I think one of the signs of that, um, and I do this and, and maybe you do it too, um, in our prayers we try to minimize what it is we're asking for God. It doesn't matter how big the thing actually is. We try to make it sound small for God so that he'll, he'll, you know, okay, I guess I can fit this in somehow. I'll figure it out. Right? We, so, we, so we say, God, I'm just praying. God, we just pray that 
you would bless us. Lord, we just pray, pray that you would, you would, uh, bless this food to our nutrition. Lord, we just pray that you would watch over us today on the slippery streets. We just pray, we just pray, we just, little tiny prayer, God, not, not much of a prayer. Don't, don't, don't sweat this one, God. We have these minimizing prayers. And I think the reason is because we assume that God is like us, that God can only deal with small things. But what we see in the scriptures is a God who's very comfortable with big things. God, a God who's very comfortable when we add zeros to our request. So what I want to do today is I want to look at one of these passages and see what we can learn by looking at a time when Jesus dealt with a great big request. There was a, a crowd of people, 4,000 people who needed to be fed, so... So if you could find that in your scriptures, we're looking at uh, Mark's account of this of this miracle. There's actually six accounts of feeding miracles in the New Testament. And the reason for that is there's actually two separate feeding miracles. There was uh, one that happened uh, a couple of chapters ago in Mark's account, and then the one we're going to read today. Uh, all of the gospel accounts, all of the biographies of Jesus record at least one. John and Luke record one feeding miracle, and Matthew and Mark record both of them. So we're looking at the second one. They're similar and they're different. Um, if you go online and you download the study questions, there's a bunch of questions that can help you kind of dig in and unpack some of the some of the nuances of this story. But for our purposes, probably the most important thing is this is the second one, so it's happened already or something very similar has happened um, and the first one happened on the west side of the Jordan River whereas this is happening on the east side of the Jordan River the west side of the river the the land of Galilee was mostly populated by um, by Jews there were some Gentiles who lived there but it was mostly Jewish area and the east side of the Jordan River where Jesus is now the region of the Decapolis is mostly populated by Gentiles and again there are some Jews but it's mostly Gentiles so that's kind of the the backdrop for this story and so we begin in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, In those days, when there was again a great crowd, and we need to stop there, because we need to pause and just think that over. Uh, remember, Jesus is in the wrong side of the Jordan River, right? These are Gentiles, and they came to hear Jesus too. You know, stop and think about that. Every place Jesus went, he drew crowds, even places where we might not expect him to. You know, if he's if he's preaching in, in Galilee, uh, that's kind of his hometown. Some people may have heard about him. They kind of know who you're talking about. Uh, this is this is a strange territory. People don't know who Jesus is here. Um, people aren't Jews, or, for the, or most people aren't Jews. They don't have any expectations that God is going to provide the world a Messiah. They don't have any idea that God has any outstanding uh, promises to to his people. They don't even follow God. So... This Jewish rabbi carpenter person shows up and they come flocking to him. Why did they do that? Well, maybe it's because he was a, he was a wonder worker. You know, the ancient world was filled with wonder workers. People would go around and maybe it was they were not as sophisticated. They didn't have slow motion cameras or whatever it was. They could tell, you know, so sometimes there were, there were wonder workers who were frauds, but, uh, there were wonder workers. People didn't always understand how things worked. Maybe people had spiritual gifts. I don't think the reason that crowds came to see Jesus was because he was a wonder worker, at least not primarily a wonder worker. Was it because he taught about people and God and, and the connections between the two? Maybe. But, you know, the world was filled with, with people who did that too. They were called philosophers. In our day, a philosopher is somebody who works in a university. He lives in an ivory tower. 
he talks about, you know, things that none of us understand and really don't care about. That's what philosophers are today. But in the ancient world, there were philosophers on every street corner. And so if Jesus is talking about God and the meaning of life and things like that, that probably wouldn't have drawn a crowd either. My guess is that what drew the crowds was what it was Jesus said about God. He said, he said, there's a God who knows you, who knows you personally, has been watching your whole life, and he loves you. And Jesus demonstrated that because he hung out with people that you might not think God would love. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. He hung out with prostitutes and Roman officers. Jesus demonstrated by his life this startling message that God knew people personally and loved them. And I think that's what drew the crowds. And I think it's what still draws crowds today. I think a lot of people are hungry to hear that message today. So if you're following in the outline, people will come great distances in great numbers and go hungry for long periods to encounter Jesus. People will encounter Jesus. And I think that that begs the question for 90% of churches, including ours, which is where's the crowds? Where are the crowds? You know, if people only come to a church in small numbers, if people only come when it's convenient for them, then I think we have to ask the question, are they coming for Jesus? Because Jesus draws crowds. Jesus has a message that people will skip lunch for. So where are the crowds? I think a lot of churches need to ask that question honestly. What is keeping us from presenting Jesus in a way that people see it and flock to hear from Jesus? So people come from great distances to hear Jesus. So in those days, there was once again a great crowd without anything to eat. They, they didn't have any, any food. And Jesus calls his disciples and says to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from great distances. Jesus says, I have compassion for the crowd. Now, Compassion is not a word we use a lot. It's mainly used by charities and churches talking about some sad situation somewhere in the world, the Syrian refugee crisis or something. We never say, honey, I have compassion for you. We never say, oh, darling, you're just the most wonderful little adorable child. I have compassion for you. We don't use that word. And it really doesn't have that meaning. What it means is my heart is broken because of what I see. It says, it says, what I'm looking at, what I, what I am perceiving here in front of me is breaking my heart. Jesus is moved to action. He doesn't simply feel sorry for the crowd, but he says, I have compassion. I have the kind of sympathy that leads to action. I have compassion for the crowd. Jesus has compassion for the crowd and he has compassion for us. And what's interesting here is there is no crisis. You know, maybe we've become used to in our era that, you know, when somebody gets elected office, their, their goal often seems to be to, to def- defer the problem until the next administration or until, uh, you know, the next election cycle. But Jesus is looking ahead. Jesus is saying, nobody's fainting right now. But if I send them away, they will faint because they've been without food for a couple of days. Jesus is looking ahead into their future and saying, this is not going to be pretty. And it breaks my heart. 
You know, I think a lot of us, one, one of the problems we have with Jesus is, is we think that Jesus is a killjoy, that Jesus is out to wreck our fun. And if we, if we do the things that he's calling us to do, if we spend the time in prayer or reading the Bible, if we tithe, if we do the things that Jesus invites us to do, that he will kill our fun. But the scriptures show that that's not what Jesus was like. Jesus was actually the life of the party. He got criticized because he hung out with people. He went to the wrong kind of parties. He hung out with people who drank too much. They called him a wine guzzler. Jesus isn't opposed to fun. But Jesus can look into our lives and he can run the the film forward a few frames and say, you know what, if you don't make some changes in this area, you're not going to be happy. And it breaks my heart to see what's going to happen if you don't make some adjustments in your life. Jesus is not a killjoy. Jesus just cares about our future. So if you're following in the bulletin, Jesus has compassion. Jesus' heart is broken for you because he knows your future. We don't know our future. And so sometimes, because we don't know what Jesus is planning for us, we don't know whether to trust him. You know, we, we, we trust Jesus in the abstract, but you know what? I asked him to do this thing and he didn't do it. And, and I look at this, this story and I wonder how many of the people in this crowd went to hear Jesus. They liked what they heard, but after a day they said, okay, I think I've heard enough. I think I've got the gist of this. And then they went back to their regular lives. They, they bailed out after a day or after two days and they missed the miracle because they weren't willing to be blessed on Jesus's timing. So the question for us is, are we willing to wait for Jesus' timing? Because the one thing we're assured of is that Jesus looks at us and has compassion. So Jesus tells this to the disciples and then he waits. He doesn't ask them anything. He just makes this comment. And I think Jesus is hoping his disciples will get that, get that expression they make and say, oh, he's going to do it again. But they don't. They seem to have completely forgotten what happened on the other side of the river a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. They have no idea. They say to him, they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? And you know, this does not reflect well on the disciples. This does not make the disciples look very good because they just helped Jesus do a miracle a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. They saw Jesus feed a bigger crowd than this. And they seem to have completely forgotten. And I have to wonder, maybe it's bias. Because these are Gentiles. And maybe they think, you know, Gentiles, tough luck for them. If they didn't bring any food, that's their problem. God doesn't owe Gentiles anything. Now, if it was Jews, of course God's heart goes out to Jews. I wonder if that's what it is. Because... Since they were small, you know, forget, forget the, the miracle just a couple of weeks ago. But since they were small, since they first began attending synagogue, they'd heard over and over again, rehearsed year after year, the story of God's saving events in the life of Israel. He'd, they'd heard about the exile, about how, how God had delivered the people of God from bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea. You saw the movie. And, and brought them through the Red Sea on dry land, took them out into the desert and fed them. Over and over again for 40 years, God fed his people in the desert. They know this, but for some reason they're saying, well, you know, they aren't Jews. These people are Gentiles. God doesn't feed Gentiles in the desert. He only feeds Jews. Whatever reason it is, because they just blanked or because they assume that God doesn't feed Gentiles, I don't know what it is, but they say, 
I got nothing, Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus says, okay, well, we'll feed him. But, you know, I wonder how many of us, we miss the miracles in our lives because like the disciples, we're expecting something flashy. We assume that if God's going to do a miracle, it's going to be like that, that going through the Red Sea, you know, God's going to split the Red Sea and we're going to have a miracle that we won't forget. Or God's going to feed a nation in the desert for 40 years and we won't forget. But people can forget anything. There are no unforgettable miracles. We see that right here in this passage. What we do see all the time in the Bible is God loves subtle miracles. God loves the miracles that everybody else doesn't even know it's happening. But the people who are watching are left scratching their heads saying, how did that happen? And I invite you to think about your own lives. One of the places where nobody else would ever be convinced. They would never, it wouldn't hold any water, they wouldn't buy it. But you know something strange happened. And you scratch your head when you think about that. How was God doing that? You know, I asked God to do this, and I don't know how it worked out, but it did. We see this all through the scriptures. The prophet Elijah once once gave a woman a jar with oil and a jar with flour during the middle of a drought. There was no food, no olive trees weren't producing. And he said, hang on to these because they will never run dry for the duration of this drought. And there wasn't a great big warehouse full of full of flour and oil. There was just a jar. But every day she went back to it, and every day there was more. That's the kind of miracle God delights to show to his people, the one that that they see, and they wonder, how does that work? But nobody else would even realize it was going on. There are no unforgettable miracles. We can all forget any of God's miracles. But if we watch for things that are subtle, if we watch for the way God operates, the places where we scratch our head and say, how did that even turn out so well? Those may be the miracles God wants you to pay attention to. So... Jesus says, let's have a do-over. He says, how many loaves do you have? They say seven. He orders the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. After giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute. They distributed them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after blessing them, he ordered these two should be distributed. They ate and were filled. They ate and were filled. This word for filled is a farming term. It means they were fattened, like you fatten a cow for market. They were gorged. They were stuffed. It was like, no, I can't have another bite. Please, thanks. No. They were filled. Jesus took those seven loaves and fed to, to gorging a crowd of seven, uh, 4,000 people. And there were seven baskets of scraps left over at the end of it. This summer, I heard a story from a pastor named Gam- Dr. Satish Gamar. He's the pastor of the Calvary Temple in Hyderabad, India. It's one of the largest churches in the world. I'd never heard of it before. They have about 150,000 people go through their church every weekend. And he told this story. He was talking about how he began his ministry 15, 18 years ago. He was trying to get support from missionaries, and they didn't want to support him. And He told how he had finally gone to God in prayer and said, God, do something amazing in my ministry. But the, the, the story that he said inspired him wasn't in the Bible. This was the story. Apparently it's an Indian folktale. He said there was, a, there was a man who went up to the palace 
and begged from the king, or begged from the, the king's officer, the, the captain of the guard outside the palace. He said, uh, my family is poor. We're starving. Can you give us a hundred dollars? And the captain of the guard said, no, I won't give you a hundred dollars. But the man kept begging and kept begging and kept begging. And finally, what the captain of the guard said is, look, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll take you in and you can ask the king. And if he, if he grants your wish, then fine. And so he was brought into the throne room. And he said, uh, your majesty, this man has a request to make of you. And so the, the man who, the, the, the man who had been begging, he stands up and he says, your majesty, I'm asking that you would just give me a hundred thousand dollars. And before the king can even respond, the, the official, the, the palace guard says, hold on, wait, wait a moment, your majesty. This man's a cheater. He's a swindler. That's not the request he said he was going to ask. Outside, he said he was going to ask for a hundred dollars. And he says, your majesty, it's true that I asked this man for a hundred dollars, but you are the great king and it would be an insult to ask you for a mere hundred dollars. So to give you grace and to give you blessing, I asked you for a hundred thousand dollars. And the king smiles and says, finally, someone who understands what it means to come before the great king. You know, when we ask a small request of Jesus, it's not like, well, okay, well, I will fit that in. It's telling him, Jesus, I don't think there's really all that much you can do for me. But when we ask a great request of Jesus, when we add some zeros to our request, that actually magnifies the Lord. I'm on number five. I skipped four. I'll come back. Adding a zero magnifies the Lord. It's not an insult to Jesus to say, you can do a thousand times what this palace official can do. So we magnify the Lord. Notice also number four, Jesus invites the disciples to be part of this. He takes the bread that they offer. He takes the fish and then he does something amazing with it. He in, he involves them in the work that he's doing. He doesn't simply pass it all out himself. He gives it to the disciples and they are involved in the distribution. Jesus asks us to invest in what he's doing. Jesus asks us to invest our material resources, our bread, but also our time and our labor, our distribution. Jesus asks us to be in, uh, to be involved in the thing he's doing. So, that's that's kind of the lesson. Let me give you a couple of applications as we conclude. The first one, I would just invite you to banish from your vocabulary just prayers. Don't ask small things of God. Don't ask for a hundred dollars. Well, we get into a whole question when we start talking about asking money from God. You know, if you're thinking that I'm saying if you ask for a hundred dollars from God, he'll give you a hundred thousand. Well, no, uh, that guy's on TV. I'm a different preacher, but, but ask prayers that are big. Ask, ask God prayers that are big. Don't say just this little thing, God. Instead, instead, if you can't remember anything else, if you catch yourself saying just in the middle of a prayer, stop and say at least. Say, God, at least do this. I know you can do a lot more. My mind is blanking. I don't know what that is, but at least do this. Don't say just prayers. There's a second thing, a second application, which is what stops us when we're in a situation like this, when we see a crowd, when we see some big need, when we see something that is beyond our ability to grasp, I think a lot of the times we say what the world says. We say, look, I can't help because if I did it for you, I'd have to do it for everyone else. And I think that is exactly what the gospel calls us to do. 
The, the gospel says, do for the one what you wish you could do for the others. And let God worry about what happens when the bread runs out. Do for the one what you wish you could do for the, for all of them. You know, don't be the world. Don't be the world that says, I can't make an exception for you. Instead, do for the one what you wish you could do for them all. And finally, an application for us in the church. And that is to do the same thing here. Ask for more. Ask for God to increase this church. Ask for God to increase the number of children in our children's ministries. Ask for God to increase the number of young adults. Ask for God to increase the families in our church. Ask for God to increase the number of marriages that are saved, the number of addictions that are broken, the number of finances that are restored. Ask God to increase the impact of this church. And not just by a one or a two. God loves individuals. But we bring glory to God when we add a zero. Ask God to increase the work that this church does and the people who are blessed by it with a whole bunch of zeros. You know, I've had people at this church tell me, probably more than half of you have told me, you don't want to go to Change Point. Let me tell you, you know what? If God added a zero to our attendance, we still wouldn't be Change Point. We have about 45 people in worship here on a typical Sunday. If God made 450 people come to this church, we'd be about a quarter the size, about a fifth the size of Change Point. You're not going to come to Change Point. But beyond that, let me ask you, what would be wrong? What is it that would suddenly go bad about this church if we had 450 people in this church? Because you see, Jesus looks at our mission field. Jesus looks at the 15,000 people in our community who have no knowledge of Jesus. And he has compassion because he can see their future. And he wants us to be involved in the work he's doing. He wants us to feed them. And so I ask you, if this church's impact was increased, if we added by a zero, what would be so bad about that? You know, God doesn't call us to be critics or connoisseurs. God calls us to be students. And if you say, you know what, I'm not sure, God, if I would be happy at a church like Change Point, why don't you let God teach you instead of telling God, no, you operate in these parameters, God, and if you operate outside these parameters, I'm having nothing to do with it. Why don't we approach the problem with a student's contrite and humble heart and say, God, Show me. I want this church to have an impact because my heart breaks for our community the way yours does. So God, I'll add a zero because I know adding zeros magnifies God. Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of church. Let's not pray small prayers. Let's pray big prayers. Let's add some zeros. Let's pray. Loving and holy God, we give you thanks for for who you are, that you looked at us. You looked at us when we are Gentiles. We are on the wrong side of the river. And you knew that our lives were headed for trouble. And so you called us and you fed us. You gave us your grace. And Lord, we pray that we would be the same kind of people, that we would remember the things you do, that we we would remember even the small and subtle things, the things that just made our heads puzzled. 
that made us scratch our heads. Lord, help us to remember those things, to remember you're a God who answers big prayers in small ways. But Lord, let us never put a limit on what you can do or what you want to do. Help us to invest in your work, our time and our resources, so that we can be part of the work you're doing in the world. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.